Please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Ephesians today, chapter 4, Ephesians 4. And we begin to look afresh at the implications of our faith. Ephesians is uh, obviously uh, a letter of the Apostle Paul, and it follows a format that is, if you will, the prototype for the way Paul's letters to churches, for the most part, follow. That is to say, the first half of the book is primarily doctrine. This is what you are to believe. This is who you are and what you are to believe about God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, and about yourself. The first half of the book is that. The second half of the book is what difference does any of that make in your life? So the fact that Jesus is Lord has a behavioral expectation attached to it and so forth. So chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians deal with the question of how should that be applied in my life. Ephesians has six chapters, breaks right here in the middle. First three are doctrine, last three are application. The uh, book of Romans, for instance, another illustration, has 16 chapters, and the break occurs at chapter 12. So the first 11 chapters are doctrine, and then chapter 12, very familiar verse, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, because of all that we've just said, you now should present your body as a sacrifice. That's the application of the doctrinal section. So that's the way the apostle is writing. He gives strong doctrine, and then he gives strong application. Well, here we are in chapter 4 of Ephesians, and you'll note that the very first word is a conjunction. And that word is a conjunction back to the entire doctrinal section that he's just mentioned. So we're going to read this passage, and then I'm going to show you two imperatives in this little section, two commands, and one implied imperative that I think uh, I'm trying not to do too much injustice to the Bible when I make this application. But let's read these six verses beginning in chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So you'll note in verse 1, there is this imperative that we are to walk worthy, walk worthy. Uh, likewise, in verse 3, there is the imperative to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And I'm going to suggest that thirdly, we are called to live under submission to God. We shall see that plainly momentarily. What is the 
imply when he uses the phrase walk worthy? Well, the conjunction reminds us that he's already told us a lot. I'll reiterate it quickly. In chapter 1, we are chosen, we are adopted, we are forgiven, we're united together with Christ, we have been promised an inheritance, and that inheritance has been sealed or guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, and we are the recipients of God's great power for our lives here and in the life to come. All of that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he has made us spiritually alive raised us and seated us with Christ. He has brought us near to God, reconciled all of us into one body, his body. He has made peace with himself for us, and he has made in us a dwelling place for the Spirit. In chapter 3, we are described as fellow heirs and members of the same body, and we are the church to declare the wisdom of God to principalities and powers and places that we can't even understand. All of that as doctrine to say this is who you are and this is why you should walk worthy. Which brings us to this whole phrase, walk. This word walk means literally how you just live your life, how you conduct your life. Walk in such a way, live in such a way, conduct your life in such a way that you show yourself worthy. Now this word worthy is problematic for many. I want to spend a minute here because I want to tell you what it is and what it's not because it's very important that we not believe what it's not because it's a, it's a real guilt opportunity for those who love to carry around guilt. This is your phrase and I want to try to I want to pop that balloon and tell you that is not at all God's plan for your life. That is not at all what he's trying to do here. This word worthy <clears throat> comes from a word that literally means weight. So you think of in terms of a scale, you're trying to measure the value of something, how much it's worth. And you, you have a scale and you, you put weight on one side of the scale and you try to balance that out and you tell by the measure of this weight or the worthiness of this weight, the worthiness of this other thing in the scale. So if you're measuring a precious metal or something like that, you measure it by weight. We understand that. So this word worthy is a word that comes from that. How much is this worth? So he asks us here, commands us rather, to walk worthy. He uses this same exact phrase in the book of Colossians, also a letter from the apostle, chapter 1, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Similarly, Psalm 1 addresses this in a roundabout way. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So we are to walk in the way of God. This is how we are to conduct our lives as worthy. Now, some would say that this word worthy 
means that somehow we are to merit or earn the Lord's favor, or if you will, the Lord's gift. Let me give an illustration of this. Maybe you've seen the Tom Hanks movie, Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen it, you don't like blood and guts, don't see it. But there's a lot of that. But you'll know that the plot is that Tom Hanks is a captain, and he has to go, he has to lead a group of guys, soldiers, to save this Ryan, who's a private, and uh, his brothers have died, and now they're going to get him off the battlefield because he's the last remaining sibling. That's the plot line. So in the process of trying to go find Ryan, a lot of good men die. And you may remember at the end, uh, Tom Hanks' character, the captain, as he's dying, looks in the face of Private Ryan and tells him, go earn this. Go and live your life in such a way as to merit all of this. A lot of good men died for you. You make it worth their lives. That's quite a burden, isn't it? You take a 20-year-old man and say, I want you to live the rest of your life earning the price paid to save you. That's quite a burden. Of course, in the last scene, Private Ryan, now an old man, comes back to the cemetery in France where the captain is buried, stands before his grave marker, kneels before it, tears falling. And he asks the captain whether or not his life has been worth it. I hope I have done what you ask. Live my life in such a way as to be worth it. Do you know that was unfair of Private Ryan to be asked to do all that? Just like it's unfair of you. Do you know what God is not asking you to do? God is not asking you to deserve all that he's done for you. Because if you had a thousand lifetimes... You could not deserve the blood of the only begotten Son of God for you. You're not going to deserve it. So in that sense, if you understand worthy as deserving, you're going to be burdened the rest of your life. Burdened in a way that God does not intend for you to be burdened. So what does he mean? If he doesn't mean that, if he doesn't mean guilt because somehow a great price was paid for me and I should feel guilty and I'm never going to be worth it and poor pitiful me and poor pitiful me and poor pitiful me and I can't afford to make a mistake. A second error is to suggest that somehow you have to go and be perfect. That somehow worthy means you should be perfect. Christ has died for you so you should go and be perfect. Well you are clearly expected by God to be holy The Bible says that without the holiness of God, no one will ever see eternal life. 
That means you and me and anybody else we could name today. Without the holiness of God, we shall never inherit eternal life. Be holy even as he is holy, the Bible tells us. So we are to be holy, but nowhere does the Bible require us to be perfect in light of the sacrificial work of Christ. I cannot be perfect. I've been trying all my life to be perfect, and I have failed miserably. Miserably. I just think of yesterday. The misery of failure. The misery of not achieving worthiness if worthiness is perfection. None of us are perfect. And we're not going to be perfect. We're not auditioning for perfect tomorrow. We're not perfect. And because we're not perfect, that's not what worthy means. It doesn't mean go and live perfectly. It does mean that so much as it depends upon you, the lean of your life is toward God. To lean into your identity with Christ. If you've been adopted, act like it. If you've been redeemed, act like it. If you've been chosen, act like it. If you've been saved, act like it. If you've been given an inheritance, act like it. If the Holy Spirit lives within you, act like it. You say, well, I'm not perfect. Get over yourself. Nobody says you should be perfect. Jesus is the only perfect one. That's why it's good news. He takes the pressure off. I can follow Christ imperfectly, but worthily. I can walk worthy because I understand what Christ has done for me. Somehow my head and my heart need to lock up. And I need to understand that now my, my life is to be different because of who Christ is and what he's done for me. And the challenge of living for him ought not to be so foreign or, 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 or so strange or, or so offensive. Yes, my flesh labors against the Spirit. Yes, my flesh labors against the law of God. Yes, my flesh labors against the way of Christ. But I am nonetheless following Christ. Following Christ. This is what he means to walk worthy. He gives a, a series of modifiers right here. Verse 4, verse, uh, rather verse 2. Chapter 4, with all humility... Humility. He has said the same thing in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If that list in Colossians 3, 12 looks a whole lot like Ephesians 4, 2, well, they have the same author. This is a recurring thing for Paul and for us with all humility, he says in verse 2, and with gentleness. Remember Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, clearly a fruit of the Spirit. Thirdly, in verse 2, with patience, with humility, gentleness, and with patience. Colossians 1, also, the apostle enjoins us to submit to him by means of 
patience. Verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And then lastly here in this this series of, of four modifiers, we are to bear with one another in love. Bear with one another in love. So what does it mean to walk worthy? It means to be humble, gentle, patient, and loving. So let's just do a little inventory for a minute. How about yesterday? How humble were you yesterday? How gentle? How patient? Did you bear with others in love? See, the Bible doesn't require us to be perfect. But the Bible tells us again and again and again to be humble and to be gentle and to be patient and to bear with others in love. You want to know what walking worthy looks like? It looks like that. And the reason we do that is because we used to be in the dark and now we walk in the light. And we see the ugliness of pride and we swap it for humility. We see the ugliness of being rough and unkind and vulgar and we swap it for gentleness. We see the ugliness of insolence and impetuousness. We swap it for patience. We see the ugliness of not walking in love. We trade it for love because this is the way of Christ. This is the way of our Savior. We are to walk worthy. We are to show Christ. There's a second command here, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't call upon us to cause the unity of the Spirit. There's none, there's none of us that can cause the unity of the Spirit. Think about that for a moment. The Bible is clear that the Spirit moves as He will, and we do not choreograph the Spirit. We don't have control over the Spirit. So the Spirit convicts of sin and convinces of righteousness. The Spirit illumines our mind and our hearts and shows us the beauty of Christ. You can share your faith with someone. The Spirit of God is your utter dependence. You're dependent upon the Spirit to help you as you share and also for them to see or believe or cling to the gospel. The Spirit of God does what the Spirit of God does and you don't. You can't. You can't choreograph or manufacture or manipulate the work of the Spirit and yet the Spirit is that one in whom we are utterly dependent upon. 
Notice we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit, which is to say then that the unity of the Spirit in the church, which is exactly the context that Ephesians is talking about, the unity of the Spirit is a given. God has already given it to the church. He's given the Spirit. He made that clear uh, back here in chapter 3. If you'll uh, notice in verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. The working of his power. And he explains the nature of that. And then in verse 10, he concludes, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Think about that. The, the spirit is given to the church so that the rule of the spirit over the church might be a manifestation or a demonstration, if you will, the living laboratory to show rulers and authorities in high places that they are defeated. The church, by maintaining the unity of the spirit that God placed in the church, is intended, is intended for us to think about what God is up to and how God is up to and then demonstrate that to the authorities in heavenly places that we don't have any control over. I urge you to contemplate how important it is for you to lean into or to do your part to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So much as it depends upon you, I would ask, are you helping or hurting the unity of the Spirit? I uh, thought about it this way. I'm not a chemist, but I'm aware that in chemistry there are three laws of thermodynamics. Here's the second law. The entropy of any isolated system always increases. You say, I don't know what that means. Good. I'm going to translate it. The second law of thermodynamics means that things become more disorderly in time unless outside forces are brought to bear on it. I'll give me an illustration. I want you to think of the day that you took your child to college. Maybe you put them in an apartment, maybe you put them in a dorm room. We have three girls. Susan loves to do all that stuff. We took our three girls to college. We put together a beautiful dorm room. And then entropy set in. As soon as we left. You know what dorm rooms look like after a month? They're not the same. Neither is your house. Some of you have dust about that thick. It's fine, by the way. I don't care. I don't know what God thinks about it. Cleanliness is next to godliness is not in the Bible. That's Ben Franklin, who was not a Christian. Don't get your godliness advice from Ben Franklin. But entropy sets in. Look at the human body. 
This thing used to be finely tuned machine. But if you ignore it, entropy sets in. That's the second law of thermodynamics. I think about that with the unity of the Spirit. What has God done in bringing people to himself? He's done a supernatural thing. The Spirit of God has brought them out of darkness into light. And for the first moment of their lives, they feel secure in God. And they don't feel that God hates them. And they don't feel that God doesn't know them or that God doesn't love them. And they feel overwhelmed by the joy of the work of Christ and the joy of redemption. And they're brought into a church. And what is that church supposed to do? That church is supposed to embrace that person, warts and all, foibles and all, entropy and all, and say, thanks be to God, you are one of us. You may not look like us or talk like us or eat the stuff we eat or dress like we dress or whatever, but you are one of us because the Spirit who birthed me birthed you. You are me. You are my brother and my sister. And the Spirit has brought these people together in this group called the church. And the church is a bunch of folks who don't look the same. To borrow another analogy, we're the island of misfit toys. That's what we are. We're not many mighty, not many noble, not many strong and powerful, not many respected in the world. So what? These are the ones the Spirit has brought together. And our job is to walk worthy of Christ and to maintain the stuff the Spirit built. But what happens? Sometimes the reverse. Sometimes we, we decide that the Spirit didn't know as much as we know. The Spirit doesn't understand things as much as we understand things. Or the Spirit doesn't care about the things that we care about. <laughs> well, the first two may be reaching. But I will assure you that there are many things that the Spirit does not care about that we care about. I'm always respectful of the fact that a worship service is supposed to take a certain amount of time. I know some of you love to talk about that, you know, and kind of jab me. But I, 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 really, I really, there is a clock on the wall. I am watching it. Believe it or not, I am watching it. But I assure you that the Spirit doesn't care about that clock. I do. And I do because you do. But the Spirit doesn't care about that clock. And a thousand other things that we let creep into our view of God, our view of the church, our view of holiness, our view of righteousness, our view of the value of people, and the consequences of our mouths and our tongues and our slander and our gossip. The Holy Spirit cares about those things differently than we do. And it's not his job to conform to me, is it? Rather, it's really my job to maintain 
what he's done in me. And to help you maintain what he's done in you. And somehow bringing all of us together to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. If you're looking to assert yourself over someone else and say, I'm more valuable, well, understand you're in direct violation of humility. If you you mean to assert yourself in a way that is rude or, or unkind towards someone else, understand that you are in direct violation of gentleness. And on and on we could go. How long do we have to put up with those people? I don't know. We just have to be patient. How long has God been patient with me? I was converted when I was 11. God's been patient with me all my life. And praise God, he shows no signs of becoming impatient with me. Now, I'm often impatient with others to my shame and if you're guilty of the same then to your shame but God has called us to walk worthy of the manner of life to which we've been called which is to maintain the unity of the spirit this after all is not just a gathering of a bunch of like-minded people who are all cheering for the same team, or all wearing the same clothes, or all like to eat the same foods, or a thousand other things that defined human gatherings. Rather, this is a supernatural gathering of the people of God, who, though lost, were found, who blind now see, who walking in darkness now have come into the light so that they might worship Christ together with others like and unlike them. This is a supernatural gathering. In other words, what the Spirit wants is all that matters. There's one vote, and that's the Spirit. Whatever He says, that's what we want to do, because that's exactly what God has called us to do. So the job we face week after week month after month, year after year, is to maintain the unity of the Spirit and not allow these factions or prejudices or, or polarizations or personalities to rise up above anyone else. That's not who God is. That's not who God's people are. We're to maintain the unity of the Spirit through peace. And then lastly, I've summarized this by simply saying we're to submit to God. There's a series of one statements beginning in verse 4. There are actually seven of them. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But you'll notice that after he makes the last statement, who is over all, through all, and in all. He makes that kind of statement similarly regarding Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what are we to take away from this series of one statements in verses 4, 5, and 6? Well, we are to hear this last one. He is over all and through all and in all. In other words, what's really going on here is the authority of God, the preeminence of God, the priority of God, the worship of God. We're actually here for God, as it turns out, and not merely for ourselves. Though we clearly are here for ourselves, there is obviously a component of encouragement, a component of exhortation, a, a component of enlightenment, if you will. That we are to gather together to teach and to sing, so to, to learn and to worship and to respond to God. All of that is, is tied up in all of this, but ultimately, in the end, all of this is not fundamentally about me or you. It's fundamentally about God. And why is that? Because He is over all and through all and in all. How do churches get messed up? They get messed up because we forget this. There's one body, but I don't like the way it's built, or I don't like the way it's shaped, or I don't like the way it acts. So I'm going to assert my view or my opinion or my preferences. And the body all of a sudden grows some sort of deformity which is this oddball or odd way of thinking. I have five fingers on each of my hands. That's typical. That's usual. turns out that's part of the design, the typical design of the body. If somebody walked in with three fingers on their hand, we'd say that's not typical. Again, the analogy falls flat here because, after all, I'm not in charge of how many fingers I got. But if I could manufacture genetically somehow and become some sort of mad scientist and create a sixth finger on this hand, every time I did this, some of y'all would say, that's weird. That's weird. And you'd lean over, distract the preacher, lean over, say, he's got six fingers on his hand. That's weird. What's wrong with him? And the reason is because That's not the typical way. That's not the usual way that God who is in all and through all has designed the body. Well, you know, when people come to church and church is not, or when the the church is supposed to do A and the church is not doing A, where the church is supposed to do B and the church doesn't do B, or the church is not supposed to do A and the church does do A, the, the world kind of steps back from that and even other Christians step back from that and said, I don't know where they got that, but they didn't get that from God. You know, God, the one who is from all and in all and through all, the whole purpose of the church is God. There is, after all, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all, in all, and through all. In other words, the unity of the Spirit is to make sure that we keep our ones where they need to be. 
It turns out you're not the one. I'm not the one. But we know the one. And he is the son of Almighty God who has the authority to tell us who and what to do and how to live our lives and calls us to account to our submission to him. There is one spirit. There are not many spirits that lead the church, that govern the church. There is one hope, and that is the hope of everlasting life and that God will one day rescue us from this body of sin and death. I've got to die to get better. One day I will die. And frankly, friend, I hope. I hope to die. I hope to die because death is the doorway through which I will walk into no more dying, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more failure, no more sin, no more dysfunction, no more sadness. There's one faith that binds us together. We all came by the blood of the cross. We all came by faith in Christ. We all came that way. We didn't come at all. There's one baptism, the baptism of the Lord God upon our hearts. He's not talking about one mode of baptism. He's not talking about water, sprinkling, immersion. That's not his debate. His debate or his point is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only one person that can cause you to be born again and there's only one baptism that can produce that and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God there is one God and Father of it all and it's all his turns out I'm his you're his we're his this is his whatever's here tomorrow is going to be his whatever here's a week from now it's going to be his whatever here's is here a year from now it's all going to be his I can't go anywhere that I'm not his because he bought me with a price and a price that I could never repay so I don't, I don't walk around feeling guilty about being born again I don't want you to I don't think God wants you to I think rather God wants you to walk around leaning into Christ following him what is it to you that God is doing something with them or those or him or her what is that to you I say to you what, the apostle, what Jesus said to the Apostle Peter when he asked about the Apostle John in John 21. What about him? Jesus said, what does it matter to you what I do with him? You follow me. So what are we to do today? We're to walk worthy the manner in which we've been called. We're to walk worthy of Christ. We are to maintain the unity, the spirit, and we are ultimately to submit to God who is over all and through all and in all. That has been, I say with glad heart, that has been the witness of this church. And I pray it remains the witness of this church. But I want you to know, friend, you're looking at the people. 
in whose power it is to either obey that or not. It's not going to be some other church that somehow damages this church. It's going to be this church if, in fact, we ever become what God tells us here not to become. It will because we didn't follow this. And I assure you, having been in a church back in the day, Susan and I, that didn't follow this, nobody wants to be in that church. It's not appealing. It's not attractive. It's not winsome. I was in a conversation about three months ago with a pastor friend. His church was splitting and, in fact, have split And he talked about the same things that always happen. There's pain and there's sorrow and there's judgmentalism. There's unkindness in spades. There's harsh words. And there's a huge, listen to me, there's a huge stench coming off the name of that church right now. Nobody wants to go there. Nobody wants to talk about their Savior. Nobody wants to listen to anybody share Christ. Because if you're following Christ and that's what Christ looks like, I'm not interested. Instead, what is beautiful is exactly what he's describing here. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. What in the world could be wrong with that kind of church? Not a thing. That's the kind of church we aspire to be and we aspire for others to be and the Lord aspires for others to be because this is the kind of church that mirrors the reputation of Christ. He is gentle. He is loving. He is forbearing. He is patient again and again and again and again. And we're following him, so we are to look like him. Let us strive to walk worthy and to maintain the unity of the Spirit and to submit to the one who owns every last detail, every last strand of DNA in this room. Is not owned by you and me, but is owned by our God. We are his. And he has paid a price beyond our comprehension to acquire us for himself. I trust you know him and that you're looking to him today. Help us all to do that together. Let's pray. Lord, give grace, much grace. Thank you for your tender mercies in Christ. We uh, want to believe and hope in Christ. And I pray, Father, for your help in doing so. There are those in this room, there are those watching via live stream that need to turn from their sin. I pray that today they would, by your grace, by your spirit. I pray, Father, you would work in such a way that they would see the glories of God and the beauties of Christ and they would put their trust in him. Lead us, Father, to Jesus. If we follow Jesus, we're going to be fine. If we follow Jesus... We're going to walk worthy. 
If we follow Jesus, we're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If we follow Jesus, we're going to be the church you want us to be. Help us to be that. Help us to make much of Jesus today. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.